We're talking about the ministry years of Jesus Christ. If you're just joining us, we're in the last few months. What we've been talking about, let me show you on the chart up here. Jesus has been ministering around this whole region, especially what you see in yellow and tan. And all of a sudden, let me do it again. All of a sudden, Jesus is headed from the one area back towards Jerusalem. It's going to take him three months. He's going to go back. He's going to stop in a lot of towns. He's going to preach and teach. He's going to give a lot of little sermons and sermonettes. He talked about the straight gate, very similar to what he preached when he was in Galilee about the narrow gate, uh, the narrow road, I should say. And this time he talks about the narrow gate, the straight gate. He has comments about Herod. He talks about at the table, how people should entertain, how people should reach out. And in that same one, he talked about a great feast coming, a great meal in the future that the master wants everybody to come to a picture of God inviting all individuals. Then after that, after he's talked about how God wants all people at the heavenly banquet feast, he makes the observation, but there are only a few who are going to really respond the right way, and these are the true disciples, and he defines what a true disciple is, and has an extended message. Then he gets into a sermon that is really, really important. You all know about it. You've heard it at some time. It's a sermon that's talking about about God's attitude towards sinners. Because the Pharisees had been saying, and they have been teaching, that God delights in destroying people. He, really, he thrills to send people to hell who are unrighteous, and only the righteous that God, that, that God loves. He hates sinners, is what they're saying. Well, when they taught this, they called themselves the righteous. And God loves us, and only us. And so the Pharisees used it as, we're better than anybody else. So it's an interesting way that they present it. So Jesus responds and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to show you and tell you how God cares for sinners. And he does it via a parable that in the singular it says one parable, or in the Greek it says one parable, it's singular, but it has three different chapters. I don't know how else to put it that way. There's three different stories in this one parable. And one of them is about a woman who loses, or a man who loses, do you remember? One of his 99. He loses one sheep, and he goes after it. One is about a woman who loses a coin that's part of her dowry. She goes after it. One is about a man whose son goes wayward. He comes back. Now, in each one of these, they have common denominators. They all lose something very important. They all go searching for it. They're all wanting it back, I should say. Then we made this observation that when they find it or they get the returned item, a son, a sheep, a coin, what is there? Great rejoicing. And he makes the comment, in heaven, there is great rejoicing when one turns back to the Lord. And so we're thankful because this week there's been a couple people um, that have prayed to get saved. And so that's, that's exciting to know that, that through the witness of some of our folk who are doing prison ministries, doing other ministries and witnessing that some have gotten saved this week. And so there's great rejoicing when that takes place. And he is trying to relay, now, now put the scene, you're there, you got the Pharisees standing in and around, and they're saying, God hates these people, God doesn't care for these people, because they, you know, they, they don't dress right, they don't smell right, and he's put, they're putting these, some of these people down. Jesus is saying, God really cares for you and loves you, and he's trying to correct the teaching he wants to make sure when he leaves his disciples teach uh, the correct truth and not teach what they have heard in Sabbath school all those years. What happens right after that is he goes into a message on money. The reason he goes into a message on money is this is why. The Pharisees also have been teaching false ideas about God and wealthy people. What do you think they're saying? Just off of me. What, what would be their attitude? Okay, if you have money, 
God is blessing you. You are loved by God if you're wealthy. If you don't have money, it means God doesn't care for you. It means that you are, you're not right with God. That, well, that leaves most of us in that spot. And so what he is doing, Jesus has to correct this. But it's a very popular teaching. It's very common that the Pharisees have been t- saying these types of things. And the reason they got said it is because back in the Old Testament, God's told the Jews, if you follow me, if you obey me, I will send you the early and the latter rains. You will have good pr- crops. Well, if you have good crops, what does that do to your bank account? That helps, okay? And so they interpreted that as saying, God will make the uh, obedient wealthy. Well, that's not what he said. He said he would provide their needs and take care of them. Or if they didn't obey, he would chastise them with even their crops and failure that way. So, but they twisted it. They took scripture and, and, and let, let's make this statement. You, if you're not careful, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Okay, you can twist it. Go ahead. It's a national promise to the people. Because did they, because, good point, Pooch. They, because even think with what, what, he, what Warren is saying. Warren is saying that even when he's saying, I'm going to provide your crops, and you're going to have good crops, didn't he in those same sections of Scripture say you will have some poor people? Yes or no? Yeah, and what are those who have good crops, what are they supposed to do for the poor? They're supposed to help them out. So even in that promise, is there, is there an, an implication that some people will have less than other people? But as a nation, he would take care of them. It's a national situation where they can... And, if, and by the way, if he blesses... Let's just you're sitting here so you became volunteers. If he blessed Jim abundantly, what should he do for a widow like Alice? You should, be, uh, you should take some of the wealth... And help her out. Correct? That was Old Testament thought. So he's not saying, okay, Alice will, will, he's guaranteeing each and every one will have the same amount of crops. But it's a national, it's a, it's a general truism. But they twisted it to say it's very personal and it's very uh, pointed that God loves those with money. So get money. However you want to get money because that means God loves you. And so they twisted it that way. Whom the Lord loves... He makes rich. Okay. Now, are there preachers who preach this today? In America, there are preachers who preach this. Okay. You know, that gospel of prosperity. So Jesus needs to correct that. He's corrected the, the teaching on God-hating sinners. Now he's got to correct the teaching God hates the poor. Okay. And he's got to deal with that. And so Luke 16, that's your setting. And that's when you read the parable and read the story, keep in mind the big picture of what he's doing in this, co- in this context. And so he's going to, going to give a couple little details. And we talked a little bit about this here in Luke 16. We talked a little bit that he gives a story at the very beginning about a steward who's working as a manager. Okay, he is, he's employed, um, and this happened frequently, that uh, for those who are, okay, Joe, you're sitting here, you volunteered. Those who are very wealthy, like Joe Mark, okay, who have, you have huge property investments, own about as much as Illinois, okay, and Joe's on the road traveling. He would hire a steward to take care of all of his business. By the way, what is the title in Bible days in the Roman world? What was the word used for that steward? Anybody remember? Who had total authority, could speak for Joe, could sign checks and do everything. 
Wife? Wife? No. <laughs> that could be the case. Okay. Okay. I was thinking more in a very spiritual plane, brother. Okay. Okay. And you're preaching. Yeah. Okay. Um, apostello. Apostello. What term do we get from that? Apostle. So they took that term. Jesus takes that economic term and says, these guys are speaking for me. And they have that same authority. Right? Okay. Remember I told you a story about the one apostello that he divorced? He had the, his manager divorced from the wife. And it held up in court, in Roman court. That when the man was away, the apostello didn't get along with the wife. So he had, he had divorced the wife and put her out. When they came back in Roman court, it was upheld because he's the apostello. Okay, so Jesus is giving a story about an unjust steward, somebody who's managing property. He's not doing a great job. And so he's, he's being checked out. The, the owner manager is going to fire him because he's not doing a good job. He knows he cannot do manual labor. He knows he's not going to get another job. So what he does is he determines to do something really fast to provide for his own future. And if you read through the story, what he does, and we just jump down and we'll catch it. He called, verse 5, every one of the debtors. He calls them in and he says, how much do you owe? And he works a deal with them that they don't have to pay the full amount, but they only pay a portion of it. And some of that portion comes down to where the one, and here's your statistics in modern day. 800 gallons of oil, you pay him half. Okay, he comes, he says, a thousand bushels of wheat, give me 800. Does that help out the debtor? The answer is yes. Does it, could it possibly help out the master? Well, it gives him capital. It moves capital right away. So, again, we don't know all the different details, but this is what the guy does. Then the master, which throws you and I off when we read the parable. When it, when it throws it off, the master comes back and we read that the master, verse 8, commends the unjust steward for ripping him off. No, that's not why he commends him. Look what he says. He commends him, he says, because he had done wisely. What's that mean? Well, he gives you the next statement. He makes the next comment that, and by the way, let's make this comment. Jesus is using this story not to promote suspect ethics or poor ethics. He's not doing that. But what he's just giving a story, it's a negative story giving a positive truth. He's saying that the steward was, was somebody who acted with, you know, as we put up here, ingenuity, motivation. His future was at stake. So what he did is he made friends with mammon. He cut deals with the debtors. By the way, what does that mean in the future? Those debtors owe him. Okay, call in favors. Absolutely. And so he's preparing for his own future by acting wisely. That's the whole point. And that's the only point. Don't get caught up with, oh, did he do something ethical? That's not the, the, the point is this man did something to prepare for the future. He used mammon. Okay. And so Jesus used the story to draw several lessons. Okay. Let, let's talk about some of the lessons. We stopped here last week and let me fill in here. If you look down to verse 9. Okay, here we go. Um, ver- middle of verse 8. The, we catch this, this story. He commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation or their nation, their surroundings, wiser than the children of light. 
Then he goes on. I say, Jesus, I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust real riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Okay, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he will hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, now, several thoughts real quick about Jesus and his comments on money. By the way, let me just throw this out. Did Jesus speak a lot about finances? More than he did about heaven and more about hell. Okay, there's comments about finance. Why is that? Because money is a big part of our life. It just is. You know, whether, whether we, you know, we don't want to be materialistic, but it is, practically speaking. Jesus calls money unrighteous mammon. What he's saying by that is not that money in and of itself is evil. In fact, Paul explains and expands upon it and says, what is the evil or the root of all evil? It's the love of money. But can that money, can that love of money corrupt people's minds and hearts? Yes, no. Can somebody, can somebody who gets money become extremely, extremely greedy and unethical to get even more? Sure. Can people, can people lie, cheat, do whatever just to get a few bucks? I, I tell you some of the saddest stories are what happens when there is death in the family. And what families do over pieces of furniture that are left over. It's sad. It is really sad. And so he's warning and he's saying money or that aspect of money. God, be very careful. It's not a neutral item in its influence. It's a very influential item in our, in our lives. We all know that. Okay? We all struggle with it at times. Can we become overwhelmed with a lack of money and running behind on bills? That's where a lot of us are, okay? That's where the reality of life is. So we got to be careful. Let me give you another thought. Per Jesus, money, this is an interesting concept. He calls money a little thing. Let me throw this out. Per Jesus, money is not as important as most people think it is. It's not that major part of our life. It's, it's an important part of life. It's a real part of our life. But can we put too much stock in things? That's a truism. That's what he's saying here. God, be careful. Okay, it is considered on the order of priorities one of the least things in life, especially when we take into view eternity. Okay, because how much of your money are you taking with you? Okay, yeah, we're not taking any of it with you. So that's where he's going with this. But money or one's use of it or lack of use reveals character. That's a truism, is it not? He that is faithful in little. He, he can be trusted with a lot. And that's true with a lot of things. If you can't trust somebody with a small item that you've loaned them, what does that say about loaning them a big item like your car? You, no way. No way. Okay, and that's a truism. That's true at work, is it not? If there's an employee that you can't trust with a little thing, if you have an employee who cheats on their lunch hour, you know, expanding their lunch hour, and you're the manager, are you going to trust them with bigger responsibilities? No, that's just true of all, of all aspects of life. If one can be trusted in small things, then he can be trusted with larger responsibilities. That's what Jesus is going on, pointing out. That's not the, that's not the most pressing um, lessons he's giving, but these are lessons that are there. Okay, let's continue on. He said, no one can serve two masters. Now, in that, the two masters are what? You cannot serve God, and who's the other one 
in competition. The mammon or money, okay? And so he's bringing that up, and he's making a point. Money often and easily becomes a master. Is that true in people's lives? Have you seen people controlled by money? Okay, can money take over their family, their whole purpose for existence? Oh, yeah. And like any other master, boy, it can be domineering. We disciples either serve God or we serve our riches. And so we have to be careful, okay? And again, there, I'm, I'm quoting some preacher from uh, years ago, and I forget who it is off the top of my head. Make money your God, and it's going to plague you like a devil. Good statement. True statement, okay? And so we have to be careful. Despite its dangers, now here's the twist of it. Here's the, the turn on. Despite its dangers, our earthly wealth is a God-given trust. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, let me see if I let me, let me see if I can turn this around. Give you an, give you an, a, a different illustration, okay? In this regard, where does your body come from? Who made your body? God. God. And who who purchased your body? Jesus Christ did by His blood. Okay, and so your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So your body is what you have of God from God. Can we take that body and make and let that body become our God? So its appetites control us rather than God Almighty. So we can take something good and we can let it dominate us and take over, okay, and, and distort our thinking, our plans. He's saying the same thing with money. Money is the same aspect, and you've got to be careful. It's not, and, and, and this is really tough for us Americans. It really truly is. For us Americans, it's really tough for us to realize money isn't as big as we think it is. True? I mean, the commercials are talking constantly about you and your investment plan and savings. And I, and I think we should be wise in our investments. But the bottom line is, who are we supposed to be trusting in even in the future? We need to be trusting in the Lord. Yes, no? And if we're faithful now, what does he promise to do? He will take care of us. He will take care of us. Okay? It's not going to be Social Security. Whew. Okay. Uh, it's got to be the Lord. And at the same time, should we be dumb and, and be irresponsible? I don't think that. But at the same time, I, I need to make sure I have a proper balance in this whole area. And so money can be a very useful tool. That's what he's getting at in this story, is that money can be helpful for you as a believer in doing what? It can be a useful tool that you have to make friends with mamma in that, mammon in that we make use uh, with our finances to improve our future, our eternal future. Now, how in the world is that done? How can we make friends with mammon so that it even affects us into eternity? We're not taking the money with us, but... Okay. Yeah, the money's not eternal, but what can we do with that money that would help us in eternity? Be charitable. Be charitable. Okay. I thought you said eternal, sorry. Be charitable. So by our charity, can that benefit us in our eternity? How so? Okay, we're helping people who are less than us. And by helping those people, does that open up opportunities to share the gospel? Absolutely. So if we use our finances, invest in charity, help out some individual, and they get saved. Have we made friends for eternity via mammon? Yeah, we have. We take that money, we invest it in charity. Is there rewards and commendation from the Lord? Yes, there is. If we take that money, you said charity. What about missions? 
Okay, investing in missions. Does that help us make friends with mammon? It does. What about the possessions you have like your home? Can you make friends via using your home? Yeah, how? Your neighbors, fellowship, and then create relationships that you are able to do what with? Share the gospel, point them to Christ. So his point here is that that steward, what did he do? He planned for the future. He established himself for a future by doing something with finances right now. You see the parallel? Using our finances now, not just to satisfy ourselves, but to do what? Minister to other people. Help other people. And what does that do? That helps us in our eternity as well as their eternity. Does that make sense? Okay. The story that goes right along with this. Look down a few sentences. What's the parable that follows right with it? The parable of the rich man... And Lazarus, what did the rich man do with his money? He kept it to himself. And as a result, there's no good eternity for him. Right? Okay, so Jesus is giving, we'll come back to that in a second. Money can be used in developing good relationships in this world and the next. Okay, being wise with our finances, investing, helping, helping in the sense of, of just using our possessions, our riches as means, as a tool that God has given us to minister to other people, get out the gospel. We should use our entrusted wealth to reach others for the future. These lessons were for the disciples to correct the errant teaching because the errant teaching was whatever you make, God is blessing you, use it for yourself. That's the Pharisees teaching. Remember? Remember? If they they didn't even want to help out their parents, they could do what with their money? They could call it Korban. It was all about myself. Keeping it for myself. Making my big bank account. And Jesus is blowing that out of the water. And then after he tells this, look at verse 14. The Pharisees Jesus has them described. He tells you about their heart. What are they? The Pharisees who were what? Covetous. What's their attitude with the teachings that Jesus is giving? What does your Bible say? Okay, do I have a word here that, um, yeah, they derided him? Do you have that? Yeah. Anybody have another word? They threw up their nose? The footnote? Yeah, it's the idea they sneered at him. They sneered at him. They're mocking him. They're just, they're busting on him. Why? Because he's advocating using your money to minister to other people. And they're like, oh, yeah, right, right. Because, by, by the way, they're standing there, and in this crowd, who's got the money? <laughs> yeah. So he's telling them to be charitable, and they're saying, no, no, if I give all my money away, it shows that God doesn't love me. God loves me, and since he loves me, I, he gives me all this money, and it's whose? It's mine. Mine, 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 my money. You know, attitude. And so Jesus turns on the Pharisees. And he's, got to, he's going to go after them directly with this, with this money attitude. And so he has sermon to them. They've heard what he said. They're sneering. They're scoffing at Jesus. And he responds at their rejection of his lessons. Now, it's interesting. Now, follow the next couple of paragraphs. It's like, oh, Jesus went on a tangent here. He went on a tangent there. He's just kind of hitting everything. That's not true. There's a flow here. There's a real flow. Look what he does. He says to them, verse 15, you are they who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. 
for that which is highly esteemed among men, you know, what you guys think, it's abominable, abominable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fall. What in the world is he saying? It's really, it's really neat what, how it fits together. He knew what they were thinking. He knew that they assumed they are acceptable to God. I'm good enough. I'm this enough. I go to church enough. I do this enough, that enough. He says, you think you're justified by your own good works. He says, you have bent the word of God. You have twisted the word of God to fit into your mold, your traditions. And he makes comments. He says, you guys know the Old Testament. And you know that John the Baptist, he was preaching the word of God. You even have said he was a prophet. And I asked you, why didn't you go and listen to him? Okay. But he says, you know that what he was teaching was true. And he makes it clear. He says, you guys are altering the word of God. However, God will not change one principle, one thought out of his word. And he uses that idea of the smallest of the Hebrew letters, that tittle. Okay, it's not going to pass away. God's word is true for all ages, no matter how much you, you change. Even that one little stroke. To give you a comparison, by the way, that Hebrew letter that he's talking about is like your comma in the English. That's about the size of it in, the, in a sentence, in the Hebrew sentence. It's a yod is what it's called. And so he says God's going to make sure that all of his word is bound. It's, he doesn't change it. It is by principle that God is operating. And then he uses uses an illustration of how they had twisted the truth. Look at the illustration in the next, par- next sentence. What area of life does he say, you guys have really distorted truth? What is it? Keep on going in your paragraph, in your thought. Divorce and remarriage. Whoso puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her that is put away from a husband commits adultery. And what's he mean by all that? Okay, here's what the word of God said. He's going to point out. And you guys, and he's saying, you guys have changed the word of God. You have twisted it. See if I can give, this, give you an illustration of this. They have started teaching by this point the reasons why you can divorce your wife. They're pretty, pretty, pretty um, lenient. Why you can divorce your wife. These were, these were the reasons that they would give. Okay? They had rewritten the rules. Jesus says, hey, listen, in the Old Testament, it's basically very simple. Adultery. And that's pretty much it. And he says, okay, what, what you have done, here is what is popular in the New Testament. Men, you could divorce your wife if she spoiled a dish of food. You've left a few in the microwave, right? I never knew they were there, but they were... You know, <laughs> yeah. Okay, how many of, if this is the reason you, can, you, you could leave somebody because they spoiled a dish of food, how many marriages would last? Okay, pretty much none of us. Okay, here's another reason. If she was in the public and she did this, and the dress came up and you saw her ankles. <gasps> oh my. Okay, she showed her ankles in public. How many of you, with what you normally wear, and your ankles were seen in public, Ladies, would you still be married? No. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, here it gets worse. If she talked to a stranger, oh my, he could divorce her. He could divorce her if she spoke disrespectful of his relatives. Okay, that's it. None of us would have made it through. Okay, okay, okay. 
so these are the rules. These are some of the some of their reasons. If she's a brawling woman. Now they defined in their rules a brawling woman. That's if her voice could be heard outside the house. Okay. Now <laughs> I'm not asking for true confession. Okay. But if you raised your voice, okay, depending upon the thickness of your walls, okay, does this make divorce real easy? Oh yeah. But but remember, if you if you follow this, it's justified. It's permitted. Do churches do this today? Do they do they make things justifiable? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just throw something out. Can you throw money at churches and make anything justified? Can rules change with money? Oh, they can. They can. And they can drop the ethics because we got coins coming in. Okay, the Pharisees were much of that same way. And so Jesus is dealing with it. And his point is, you guys twist the rules. Now, they've twisted the rules on God's love. They've twisted the rules on money. They twisted the rules on, um, on divorce. And basically, I understand why it's in this context. Because does money play into marriage relationships? Does it create tensions in marriage? Okay, if you've been married two hours, it creates tensions. You know that there's been those moments. Okay, and so, and does it, does, does, you know, this have a play? And the answer is, yeah, okay, that, that this is one of the, one of the issues that, you know, the top five issues for people having marital problems, money is right up in there, okay, as far as the problem issue. So he, that makes sense why he's bringing it in. Money and, and divorce, they have something in common. So he's going to go on from that. It's not a random thought. It's a consistent thought with what is typical, and he's going to go back to their love of money. He's going to deal with it, and he's going to point out. Now, let me throw this out. We made this comment. To me, this is a profound thought that kind of went over my head for years, but it's one of those new things that caught my attention. If, okay, in this society that they were in, they had some who were really wealthy, and they had some who were really poor. That's not in America. Okay. Okay. Can we have discrepancies? Okay. And again, I don't want to get into the political aspect. That doesn't mean everybody's wrong. Okay. But in that culture of the Old Testament, in the area that Jesus is preaching, was the intent for a few families, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to have all the wealth and everybody else be poor? Was that the intent? And the answer is no. God had put into their economic and legal system that every few years, what happens with property? It goes back to the original family clan. Okay? Debts were taken care of. Yes? Okay. What would that do? It's not socialism, but what it prevented was an inordinate, distorted uh, economic plane where the rich are getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And the, the, you know, the chasm between was getting greater. So God had an idea that there would be not everybody equal because there was always plans for there will be some poor. Okay? But it was to create a system where there was some, um, uh, the word to me, there was opportunity for all as this thing would rotate. Does that make sense? Otherwise, in their culture especially, opportunity was always, would always be limited to the wealthy and the wealthy only. 
Okay, generation after generation. And we know even in our European ancestry and stuff, we've seen how that became distorted with the kings and nobility and all that type of thing. So well, he had a more balanced social economic thing. But what he's talking about now is just very practical. Let's just talk. He's going to give the story that you all know about. There's a rich man and there's Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus both live in the same town. And, uh, and he's going to talk. Hey, I've got to stop here and do something. There is debate. You read in your commentaries, you go online, you're going to find this. Some of you, even in your Bible, your footnotes, you're going to have comments. They're going to call this either a parable or a story. And I already made the comment twice in, uh, that I can remember. I called it a parable, and that's a misnomer on my part. Okay, because I don't think it's a parable. Okay, I, I think it's a story, a real event. Okay, let me, let me give you the two different thoughts. Okay, if, if this is a real event and it really happened, and there was a rich man, Lazarus, then all the details that he gives about the afterlife, they are what? They are real. If it's just a symbolic story, then we cannot draw from here actualities about all the different details. Does that make sense? Okay, so is it real or a parable? Okay, um, the par- if a parable, then some of the details are mere symbolic. We have to be careful with that. The argument for it being a parable is this. This is the argument you're going to read that someone put out. Jesus was using parables in his teachings already. So in this setting, he's given some parables. So it fits in context that this is a parable. Okay, that, that's a good argument. I don't agree with it because I think it's a real event, real persons, real hell, real paradise that you can draw conclusions about the afterlife from it because nowhere else in parables does he give specific names. Nowhere else. All the other parables, he says, there was a certain man. There was a certain woman. But this time, he uses specific names. In particular, which person are we talking about? Lazarus. Okay. So he gives an exact name in this one, which leads me to the conclusion, this is not a parable. And if I say that again, you know, slap me. Okay, you can. The rest, no. Um, but it, when I say it, I don't mean a parable. I mean real story, but I'm probably, with, uh, with my brain being fuzzed today, that's probably going to happen. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, here's what we've got. You've got a rich man. Give me your description of him. What do you know about the rich man in this story? You got it where you start reading. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. Not to be silly, but if you're going to study the text, here's what you want to do. Sit down and go, characters, rich man. Write down everything you can think about the rich man. What do you got? He's very wealthy. He's clothed in purple. What does that mean? Yeah, he's got good taste. Fine linens. Okay. And, And the purple would be... The very wealthy color. Okay, that was a unique color to, a, to the upper class. What else do you have? I'm sorry. He ate well. Okay, he ate well. So he's obviously very wealthy. He enjoyed his luxuries. Okay, and is there anything wrong with eating well? No, no. He showed no concern for those in real need. That's a truism out of the story, is it not? Okay, because look at the story as we go on. There's the beggar named Lazarus who's full of sores. Where does he lay? At the gate. And he desires to be fed, be fed, <laughs> to be fed with what? Crumbs which did what? Which fell, which tells you about the rich man doing. He's not doing anything. 
It's by accident if this guy gets food. It's not by purpose. Correct? Okay. And moreover, who's comforting this guy? The dog. Okay. So what you got is required by the law. Here's a, here's a point that we often overlook. Required by the Old Testament law, this guy is, is disobedient to the law, the wealthy man. He is not charitable. He is not meeting his obligations that were required. He used his wealth to live for self. And self alone is what we've got. He is not a spiritual man. He's a very carnal man. Why? He's not using his possessions to minister to other people. After he dies, he prays and becomes very concerned about others once he's dead. But it is... Yeah, do you remember the story? Do you remember what happens? Read the rest of the story. He dies, he ends up in hell, and he is saying, please send somebody to warn my brothers. Now he's very concerned about people. Okay, but it's too late at that point. Okay, because the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. Okay, so there's not this idea that some, some churches, some preachers might throw it out that you'll get a second chance. There is no second chance after we die. The Bi- that's a scary thought, but that's Bible. Appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. There's not a second chance. Okay, so you have the opposite. You got the poor man. You got Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus? Okay, we know he's poor, very poor, totally dependent upon begging. We know he's infirmed. He can't, he's got to be laid at the gates. The verb is, he's not doing this himself. He's not laying himself down. Somebody else is laying him there, which implies he's too weak. He can't do anything, okay? In fact, he's so weak that the dogs, I mean, if dogs come up to you and sniff, get away. Maybe you don't. I do. Get away. Get away. Get away. Get away. Get away. These guys got sores, and the dogs, he's got sores, and he can't even do anything about the dogs, which implies he's in desperate condition. Yes? Okay. So he's unable to even protect himself from the dogs. We are not giving any details about his spiritual condition. That's nothing other than he ends up in paradise. Don't get caught up with, oh, okay, that means rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Never says that in the text. At all. And is that, what does the other Bible say? Are there rich people in heaven? Can you name me any? Abraham, David, bless you, Solomon. Okay, you have in the New Testament, Philemon. You've got other different individuals. So it's not about wealth. It's about what you do, okay, with with your relationship with Jesus Christ and how that's shown by how you live. The rich man was very, very selfish. So with based on what Jesus has already taught, we're going to make the assumption Lazarus has a relationship of belief. Okay, that's been cleared through the Gospels that except a man believes the wrath of God is abiding him in our, on him already. So let's, let's continue our story. The, both these men, they live in opposite worlds, but in the same area. On the same block, in this, they're connected by a house and a gate. And yet they are worlds apart, but they both have a few things in common. What is it? They both die. Okay, they both die. Both of them die, it says in this passage. It says, and came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels. We go a little bit further in verse 22. The rich man also died. Okay, what else do we know about them? They both die. Let me throw something else. Okay. Not only is death a great equalizer or something, they both enter into an afterlife. Okay, let me, let me see if I... They continue to live after they died. 
They both have that experience. The Bible, now again, this is a true story. It's giving me details. It is showing me that what happens when we die? Do we continue to live after we die? Yes, our body dies, but our spirit lives on. Okay, And so our spirit just vacates this earthly body and it moves to another realm, another area. Because the real you is not your body. The real you is what's inside the body, correct? Okay, the real you is what feels, what thinks, what moves. Okay, is it intertwined with your body so that you feel what your body does? Yes. Can you have feelings without a body? Yes, you can. Even though you don't have the same nerve endings, that spirit, that soul, that still feels. Well, how do I know that? Look at the passage. Look at the passage as you go on, okay? The passage talks about little things like this. It says in verse 23, In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in what? In torments. And see, oh, by the way, does your spirit body have the same characteristics? Like a face, a nose, ears, toes, tongue. It does. Look at what it says. And in hell he lifted up his eyes. He, in verse 24, Father, mercy, uh, Father Abraham, have mercy that Lazarus may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this. Okay, so your spirit body has full sensation, though it doesn't have the same physical nerve endings, but it still, still has you, your appearance, your name, your characteristics, your thoughts, your memories. Look at this. He says... You know, uh, Abraham says to him, son, remember in your lifetime, da-da-da-da-da-da, you had all this stuff. He remembers his past. He's moved to a different realm, but he still has all of his memory, his family thoughts. He's got concern for people. The rich man ends up in hell, while Lazarus ends up in paradise. Okay, they're in two different places yeah, when, they, when this happens. Now, there are several revealed facts. Before we get into the money aspect, which is the main part of the story, let's just do with a, uh, well, let's deal with that first. The afterlife and wealth. Here is what Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees. These types of thoughts. Rich people are not guaranteed a, guaranteed a place in heaven. Okay, does that rub in the face of the Pharisees? Absolutely. That's his point. Rich people are not guaranteed a place in heaven. Wealth does not mean God approves all of all that you do or how you treated others. For the Pharisees, this is the point, right? Because they have said, God loves the wealthy and he, what, the poor? He despises the poor. Okay. Wealth does not mean God loves you above those who are poor. Boy, this had to shake them to the core. We wealthy people, we're guaranteed a place in heaven. Okay. Uh, by the way, can we just change the wording a little bit? Is Amer- are, are we Americans some of the wealthiest in the world? We are. We are. Are we guaranteed a place in heaven because we're American? No. Nope, 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 nope. Okay. Poverty does not mean God is against you. Well, that's important because that's what the disciples need to carry with them. Poverty does not mean God condemns you now or in the afterlife. I'm poor, therefore God's against me. I'm poor, therefore I'm condemned by... No, 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 no. Jesus makes it very clear. Wealth does not buy you peace and comfort and luxury in the future life. Your wealth... 
does not go with you. It does not guarantee places in heaven. So this was important thoughts. Now, let's build. He's by, by the, that's his main gist. Let's you and I step back and say, okay, what else does he illustrate for us about what happens when we die? Here we go. Okay, here's a, here's a really important thought. How could these two guys who lived at the same, the same street end up in such opposite places and yet be close to each other? Because they can see each other. They can talk to each other. Look at the text. There's communication going back and forth between paradise and um, what we call hell at this point. Is this what happens when we die? When we die, are we going to see people right across the aisle here in hell? Okay, well then how did this happen? Okay, at this time it did. Okay, so what's, what's happening here? Let, let me make several thoughts. Okay, when he talks about this place, he's talking about the place of the dead, Sheol. In the Greek, we would say Hades. Okay, the, when people in the Old Testament era died, they would end up in either one of two places. One of the places is hell. Okay, one of the places is paradise or Abraham's bosom. Both of them are at times called Sheol, or the place of the dead. So you have to read your context. Sometimes the place of the dead is here. Sometimes the place of the dead is here. But there were two different areas or places where people would go to when they died in the Old Testament era. These two places were near enough each other, but they are separated by a great gulf. Did you see what he says? Abraham says, uh, you know, respond, 23 and 24. Look at the verses. He's, Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass cannot go from either place. In other words, once these people would end up in paradise, they couldn't go down into hell those in hell, in the lower area, could not say, I want out of here for a vacation and go up into paradise. There's a gulf it's a, it, that, that was fixed. Once there, you're there. Okay, and they could not move about. They could not leave this place to go and spook others or to hunt others. It was a confined area. And so he's making these, uh, these ideas very clear. At that time, communication could be made across the Great Divide. This explains what Jesus does in Second Peter. You want to turn there and see what we're talking about? In Second Peter, there's a passage that talks about Jesus Christ and his ministering. And I said Second Peter, and I'm probably thinking First Peter. Yeah, First Peter 3. First Peter 3 is where I want to be. Okay, let me, let me throw something to you. When Jesus died, he died on what day of the week? Hello. Friday, okay. And he's in the grave Friday eve, our Friday evening, all day Saturday, Sunday morning. Those of you who say, well, that's not three days. In Jewish reckoning, it's three days. Okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Part of the day is the day. Jesus does something during, those three, during that time. What's he doing Saturday? What's he doing Saturday? Just lying dormant? In the tomb? No. This passage says, here's what Jesus did. It says very clearly that when Jesus died, he says, verse 18, 1 Peter 3, Also he once died, suffered for his sins, that he might bring us to God, put to, being put to death, but which also he went and did what? Verse 19. He preached unto who? The spirits who were in an imprisoned area, era, uh, in an imprisoned era, area, which sometime were disobedience, when long ago they were disobedience, and he preached unto them. What's, what's he doing? Jesus is in this paradise. 
this Abraham's bosom, his spirit, until he resurrects. He is able to communicate to those who are in that lower compartment the same way Abraham is talking to the rich man at this time in this story. And so Jesus is able to communicate with them and inform them, let them know, preach to them, make things more aware until he resurrects on uh, Sunday morning. And so how this works is like this. There's a two areas or compartments. There's an upper part and there's a lower part. This was Old Testament. This was until what event when this changed? The ascension of Jesus Christ. When he ascends, he takes everybody in Abraham's bosom and transports their spirits to what place? Heaven as we know it today. So that heaven is up in heaven and absent from the body is present with the Lord. So there was a transitioning time taking place according to Ephesians chapter 4, which I'll pick up with next week when we continue on. But it gives you an idea that after death, there is either heaven or hell. Who determines where you go? You do by your relation with Christ.